Are you looking for a talk show featuring leading global voices? Do you want to learn more about how international issues directly affect people locally? Global Connections Television presents the insights of global influencers at no cost to viewers and programmers. GCTV is independently produced and reaches more than 70 million potential viewers worldwide each week. The show covers everything from human rights to climate change, from peace and security to empowering women and girls. It features guests such as Dr. Jane Goodall, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Mary Robinson, and Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. The show also hosts expert voices from the private sector, academia, and labor and environmental movements. GCTV is available to public television media outlets, universities, and service clubs for distribution. To watch the show or find out more, click the link in our episode description. Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Fillion. And welcome to Unscripted. Today, India uses its August presidency to show the world it deserves a permanent seat on the Security Council. We talk about it with India's ambassador, T.S. Tirumurti, and foreign policy expert, Mohamed Zishan. This is Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. The Security Council must include the world's largest democracies, major locomotives of the global economy, and voice from all the major countries. That's the voice of India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi in a statement he made at a G4 event at the UN General Assembly in 2015. G4 stands for the group of four countries that want a permanent seat on the Security Council, India, Germany, Brazil, and Japan. Six years later, India's desire to get a permanent seat on the Council remains unfulfilled, but its quest has only grown more urgent. As India takes the lead of the Council in August, Ambassador T.S. Tirumurti will show the international community that the Council's current membership structure is obsolete. With five permanent members and ten elected ones, India believes that it must have a permanent voice in the world's highest security body. Every time we have been in the Security Council, we have contributed in a very, very significant way to furthering peace and security. I think this has been recognized, and even this time, the fact that we are there, we are seen as a very, very responsible power. And uh, we are also being seen as a country with an independent foreign policy, which can be a bridge because there are several fissures in the Security Council between the permanent members and others. So we are seen as a country which can be a bridge between different opinions and different views and bring them together for international peace and security. One expert who can shed light on India's quest is Mohammed Zishan. He's the author of the book called Flying Blind, India's Quest for Global Leadership. He's also a staff writer at The Diplomat, a foreign affairs publication headquartered in Washington, D.C. that focuses on the Indo-Pacific region. Zishan thinks India still has more work to do to get a permanent Security Council seat. There is no aspirant for a permanent seat in the Security Council that is as vocal 
as India is. Now, if you take Brazil, Japan, and Germany, that are the rest of the G4, none of these countries speak as frequently about a permanent seat in the Security Council as India does, especially at the political level. You will find the Indian prime minister and foreign minister speak about this all the time. But you will very rarely find the Japanese prime minister or the German chancellor or the Brazilian president speak about this all the time. Whereas every major foreign policy speech by prime minister or foreign minister of India will have the permanent seat of the Security Council being mentioned. And so India takes this quest much more seriously than any other aspirant. India truly does believe that it deserves to have a seat in the Security Council and that it is, in some sense, its right to have that as well. But the problem for India is that the UN is an institution that suffers from tremendous inertia. And so in order to give India a permanent seat in the Security Council, in some sense, you've got to remake the UN as an organization. You've got to win very difficult majorities in the, in the Security Council and the General Assembly. And in some sense, you've got to break down the organization and rebuild it from the bottom up. And the only way I argue in my book to do something like that is if India becomes much more influential than the Security Council as a whole, such that the Security Council itself becomes purposeless and meaningless and ineffective without counting India as a permanent member, only in such a situation will you see the Security Council reform itself to give India a permanent seat. And that means that India needs to start playing a much more proactive political and security role in the Middle East, in Africa, all of the civil wars that we're seeing around the world, in Syria and Libya and Yemen and so on, and far beyond its own neighborhood. But I think that we are several years away from seeing that sort of a paradigm shift in Indian foreign policy. And so we're going to see much more of the same that we have seen over the years from India at the UN. We'll be right back. Are you thinking of a career working for the United Nations or its agencies around the world? Is it your dream to serve in your country's foreign ministry, but you don't know where to start? We may have the answer. The Center for United Nations Studies at the University of Buckingham in the UK offers a master's degree in United Nations and Diplomatic Studies. The degree can be taken full-time over one year or part-time over two. Graduates will gain a firm grounding in the work of the WHO, UN peacekeeping operations, and the UN's sustainable development goals. They will also learn about global political communication, develop negotiating skills, and write a dissertation on a UN-related topic of their choice. In addition to a high-level guest speakers program, they will have access to mentors with first-hand experience in the UN such as Program Director Mark Seddon, a former speechwriter to UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, and a former UN correspondent for Al Jazeera English TV, as well as Lord Mark Malik brown a former UN Deputy Secretary General. Applications for fall and January 2022 are now open. To find out more about the program, click the link in the episode description. Now, back to the show. Ambassador Tirumurti argues that the Council's lack of reform has hurt the body's credibility. He points to the Council's slow reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic, such as taking months to agree on a resolution on an international ceasefire to help alleviate suffering in countries already plagued by conflicts. 
when we joined the United Nations, and frankly, we joined even before we got independence. And at that time, there were a little bit more than 50 countries. And now we have 193, a four-fold increase. If you look at the Security Council now, seven of the countries right now in the Security Council were not even members of the United Nations at that time when the United Nations was born. So therefore, there is a huge change. And other countries have come in. And when other countries come in, and when the Security Council cannot accommodate the countries which have come up, uh, countries like India and a few others who are knocking at the doors of the Security Council for permanent membership, then what happens is the credibility of the institution goes down because it is not representative. If you look around, you will find G20, for example. Now, G20 has become a very important fulcrum around which a lot of economic and social issues are being discussed. That is now becoming the vehicle. If there are issues which you need to resolve, now the tendency is to go to G20 rather than come to the Security Council. I think it's not a good thing. The reason is because they feel that G20 is more representative of how the world is going forward. So therefore, it is extremely important for Security Council to also reform and bring in countries and bring back that legitimacy which it had before. And that is why it's important to reform it. But unfortunately, it's going very, very slow. It's almost at a standstill, let me be frank. For the last 15 years since we decided to take this up, nothing has moved. There is not even a shred of paper which we have brought out on this issue. There is not even documentation for the process. So I think it's important that countries who do not want reform should not hide behind the smoke screen which the IGN process gives it. And what we are trying to do is to remove that smoke screen and tell them that if you have something to say, say it. It is an open, transparent process. Let us discuss it openly. Let us have a text. Let us negotiate a text. So we are looking for a text-based negotiations, and that's what we are moving towards. India tries to show it deserves a seat as a permanent member by working with every member in the council and emphasizing that its foreign policy is independent. So it's not necessarily aligned with any permanent member on the council. When we come to the Security Council, we are equally aware of the fact that they are collectively addressing international peace and security. Therefore, the dynamics in the council can work a bit differently from what you may have on the bilateral side. If you look at issues, uh, for example, relating to Africa, South Sudan, for example, on the resolution, India, along with Kenya, abstained on the resolution. Even though they, all the P5 voted for the resolution, we abstained on it. So it's not that we are necessarily taking sides between the P5s, not at all. I think we genuinely see ourselves as having an independent voice. That's frankly, I think, our strength. But India's so-called independent foreign policy is not only to get a permanent council seat. It's actually a long-standing policy globally, Mohammed Zishan explains. One of the peculiarities of Indian foreign policy is that India tends to shy away from alliances. In New Delhi, people do not like the term alliance. It's very rarely used. So you know, when, you, when you think about the history of Indian foreign policy with the Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru, the first Prime Minister of India, he came up with the non-aligned movement at the time during the Cold War. 
which was meant to be a sort of a third way which does not align with either the US or the Soviet Union. And in many ways, I think India wants to play that sort of a role again in modern geopolitics between the US and China. India is very wary of picking sides between the US and China. It's more comfortable trying to pick sides on specific topics. So for instance, you know, if you look at something like uh, climate change, for instance, I think India and China are much more aligned. Both of them tend to talk about trying to hold the developed countries responsible for reducing carbon emissions, for instance. And on the other hand, if you look at things like freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, then certainly India tends to align itself much more with the US than it does with China. In terms of trying to play a bigger role in the Security Council, India has been pretty clear right from the get-go for several years that it wants to have a permanent seat in the UN Security Council. And India tends to see an alliance with any of the world powers as a limiting factor or an obstacle to a permanent seat in the UN Security Council because it believes that if it takes sides between the US and China or the US and Russia, for instance, then you know whichever country is being opposed by Indian policy would obviously start opposing India's bid for a permanent seat in the UN Security Council. According to Mohammad Zishan, stopping China's rise internationally has become one of India's highest foreign policy priorities, even more than its tension with Pakistan. One way this will play out in August is a council meeting on maritime security. India is part of a group of countries called the Quad, formed to counter China's ambition in the South China Sea. India won't say that's the goal. The other members of the Quad are Australia, Japan, and the United States. While India denies the upcoming council meeting has to do with China, Mohammad Zishan thinks the connection is undeniable. India wants in its diplomacy, unlike the United States or, or even Japan, India does not want to name and shame China, so to speak. Uh, in fact, one of the reasons that uh, the Quad has not been able to frame itself publicly as a counterbalancing coalition against China is because India is very sensitive about doing that for whatever reason. But the core thrust of it or the objective and intention that India is trying to pursue uh, is to try and establish some sort of balance of power in the Indian Ocean in particular, and in the South China Sea as well. But India, because of its geographical location, is more interested even in the Indian Ocean than it is uh, in the South China Sea. India has not been quite as active in the South China Sea as its other Quad partners are, especially the US's. India is much more active in the Indian Ocean region, you know, with various partnerships and bilateral treaties with Seychelles and Mauritius and Sri Lanka and the Maldives and so on, other island nations and states in the Indian Ocean region, because it thinks that it can play a much more proactive role here. So when India talks about maritime security, it's thinking about the Indian Ocean in particular. But just as Mohammed Zishan predicted, the ambassador did not want to frame the meeting on maritime security as directly targeting China. The ambassador sees it as a much-needed discussion on the issue. Maritime security is a matter of concern to all of us, including China. This is a matter which I think people tend to forget because we are all talking the same language when it comes to maritime security, because we do want this to be an important focus 
irrespective of where you live, because like us, many of us have huge coastlines. The very fact that one of our most dastardly terrorist attacks on our hotel in Mumbai and the other places, they came from the sea, those people. They came actually and landed on the shore and they went in and they uh, you know, killed people. Therefore, it's a matter of both traditional and non-traditional threats are important for all of us. And coming to this question of Quad or other thing, let me just say that we don't see Quad as against a country. I mean, this is something which we have mentioned very clearly. It's not a military alliance. We have, for example, uh, we have BRICS, five major economies, and nobody's saying that the BRICS is against another country. Not at all. It is important because we felt that five of us, we have the synergy between the five of us to come and try to see how best we can project our interests on the international level on economic and social and other issues. Uh, in fact, I was Sherpa of BRICS before coming here. And the Chinese uh, permanent representative was Sherpa of BRICS before coming here. And we both worked together in BRICS. I don't think at any point of time we see any initiative like Quad or others as being standing against another country. Therefore, I'm, I'm reasonably confident that this is an area of great interest to all of us. We are quite sure that we'll have a perspective from different countries, which may not be similar but we'll certainly enrich the discussion, and we are looking forward to China's views as well. Another priority for India is counterterrorism. The UN Secretary General is required to publish a report on the terrorist groups ISIS and Daesh in August, and India wants to organize a signature meeting about financing terrorism and new forms of revenue such as cryptocurrency. In September, New York will commemorate the somber 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. The problem of terrorism internationally has only grown more complex since then. So we asked the Indian ambassador what he thinks of the UN's counterterrorism strategy two decades later. India has probably been the biggest victim of terrorism more than any country in the world. I can say that without any hesitation. And it's a very painful thing to acknowledge that you know, we have been time and again subject of this. But at the same time, we have also been right at the forefront to combat terrorism. And when you look at how the UN has evolved, I think it has been a positive evolution because now they realize that terrorism is, and that combating terrorism is more important than ever. And even during the pandemic, the terrorists have taken advantage of the pandemic they have not, not decreased. Nothing has decreased. It has become worse. And therefore, we think it's a very, very serious thing to combat. And we are happy that the UN has taken the initiative. And UNOCT is one such initiative which has come. And Vladimir Voronko of the USG, he has been there. He has steered the ship in the right direction. But it is also important for the member states to be fully involved in it. But India's heavy focus on counterterrorism has also been criticized for being used to restrict the rights of people in Kashmir, a long-disputed territory between India and Pakistan. In August, India will convene a discussion on peacekeeping under the theme Protecting the Protectors. India hopes to pass a resolution on ending international impunity for crimes against peacekeepers. We'll be right back. I'm often asked what international affairs podcast I listen to, and I always recommend Global Dispatches. Global Dispatches is the longest-running independent world news podcast, 
published twice a week since 2013. It's hosted by veteran journalist Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, who conducts thoughtful interviews with policymakers, think tankers, and experts around the world. The Guardian calls it a podcast to make you smarter. I agree. Global Dispatches covers issues ranging from conflicts and crises in Africa and the Middle East to long-term trends in global development and the latest geopolitical intrigues at the United Nations. I've learned a great deal from Mark's interviews over the years. If you like Pass Blue, you will certainly like Global Dispatches. You can find Global Dispatches on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, back to the show. But one topic that isn't on India's agenda is the COVID-19 pandemic. Considering the dire situation in India over the past few months, the country may deliberately avoid discussing it, Mohammed Zishan says. This is a bit of an unfortunate twist for Indian foreign policy because I think that India wants to avoid speaking about the pandemic on the world stage, except for things such as, you know, sort of fighting against vaccine nationalism or speaking up for equity in vaccination and access to vaccination. Those things I think India will want to talk about and has been talking about. But uh, other issues in terms of managing the pandemic, I think India is going to want to steer clear of because of the fact that India's second wave has been so devastating. And India has, in fact, publicly protested through its diplomatic missions abroad to the way that the world press had covered the second wave of COVID-19 in India. In the early days of the pandemic, India saw COVID-19 as a potential opportunity for India to step up as a world leader because of India's superior abilities and capacities in pharmaceutical industry and vaccination manufacturing. But as a result of poor planning in India by the government, there was a massive shortage in vaccines in India, which continues to this day. And state governments continue to bicker with the union government about vaccine supply and and vaccine distribution. The union government claims that there is no shortage of vaccines. State governments say that there is a shortage of vaccines. And so India has been struggling with this at a domestic level. And so India would like to keep the global spotlight out of this for as long as possible and certainly does not want to bring this up at the UN in any manner or form. India was hit hard by its second wave of COVID-19 last spring, so much so that the government stopped delivering vaccines produced in India to other countries so it could vaccinate people at home. Now, instead of distributing vaccines abroad, India has made its vaccination platform, Cowan, available to the world as a digital public good, and it hopes to make vaccines more widely available globally. My prime minister came out and he met the world community and he told them that we are now giving this platform, the digital platform, as a digital global good. And we want to give it to the entire world. We want countries to take it up. We'll help them in that process and uh, see that this is used. So therefore, when it comes to vaccine diplomacy, of course, I, I don't want to use the word diplomacy because it looks as if we are using it as a tool to promote foreign policy. Actually, to be very frank, that was not at all the intention. This is a grave crisis facing the entire humanity. And this is not the time for undertaking a sense of competition or a diplomacy or something. We already sent about 66 million doses before we had the second wave. And we started off with the smallest countries. 
because we realize they are the most vulnerable. And if you really wait for vaccines to go there, it may take a year. So we started off with them. So it was a very conscious decision because we have a philosophy called Vasudeva Kudumbakam. In many of my statements, I mentioned it. It says the world is one family. And this is the time for the family to come together. And therefore, the initiatives which we took was unfortunately disrupted. And uh, it was a very tragic time we had during the second wave. And uh, therefore, we had to immediately consolidate, look at um, you know, how to control the second wave. And we have still about 40,000 cases a day or more. It has plateaued out. So we are hoping that it goes down rather than up. And so there, there is a, it's a very serious thing we are facing in India. Uh, South Africa and India and other countries have taken this initiative in the WTO to waive the IPR uh, uh, and, and you know, give a waiver under the TRIPS so that the other developing countries, they can be licensed to ramp up production. So therefore, I think we are trying to see how best we can contribute every turn to make sure that we address this vaccine inequity, which is there and bring about greater vaccine equity. If Ambassador Tirumorti doesn't want to use the term vaccine diplomacy, he might be more comfortable with another, softer form from India, yoga diplomacy. He has a yoga book in his office, and he's proud of India for promoting its yoga diplomacy during the pandemic. Our Prime Minister has taken yoga to the world stage by uh, you know, having this resolution of the International Day of Yoga, which was done four years ago. We just had the International Yoga Day in June. What we did was that we sent the yoga book and a yoga mat to every mission here, all the missions, just to encourage them to do yoga. It's interesting that even the United Nations has taken up this aspect and put it on their website and other things because they felt that during COVID and when people are sort of cooped up at home and uh, they have to deal with so many issues at home, both uh, official issues, personal issues and other things, sitting at home, yoga gave them tremendous solace. It gave them a lot of uh, peace of mind because it is not just used for the body, but it's also for the mind. So that's why that book is there. It always reminds me that in spite of all the things happens in the Security Council, I need to always seek peace of mind and <laughs> equanimity, if I may use the word. Let's hope that India brings some meditation and flexibility to the Security Council. That's it for our show. This episode was co-produced by me, Casey Candela, and Stephanie Filion for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leimbach is our editor. Ivana Ramirez is our intern. AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. And PassBlue is covering the important news, from women's rights to human rights to Washington's new approach to the UN. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to PassBlue.com. PassBlue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit PassBlue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends.